right, let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for this great privilege of studying your word. We pray that um, we would be encouraged, nourished, that our faith would be built up, um, that you would help us to speak to our unbelieving friends with kindness and, and gentleness. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so put that right here. So the question that we're tackling um, is, where do we get the Bible? And the skeptical view is that uh, the, the New Testament, and we're talking about the New Testament particularly, that Jesus never made any provisions or he didn't necessarily intend for the New Testament to come to be. And therefore, it came about through the circumstances of history and time. Um, and so I sort of drew, drew these circles, which represents various scrolls. Um, if you count the first five centuries after Christ, uh, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of different documents, books written. And so the idea, the skeptical view is that randomly, arbitrarily, you have these 27, 27 books chosen, and we call that the New Testament, right? And that sort of plants this doubt in my, our minds, which is like, why those 27? Um, who chose them? We have this image of like uh, the smoke-filled room. And actually the skeptical view is that it was like factions presenting their own propaganda pieces. And so uh, how do we have any assurance? And it plants a doubt in our minds. And um, I think it's important to address it because it's in many ways the first assault, a foundational assault on our faith. Satan said in the garden, after all, right? Did God really say? How can we truly trust the New Testament? But I want to show you today, and we're going to focus on the New Testament, and next week we're going to talk about the Old Testament. But I want to show you this week that, in fact, Jesus did intend very much to that the New Testament would be written, and that he commissioned his apostles to write them, um, and that... Uh, these apostles would be with him, they would be his eyewitnesses, they would live with him, and they would um, therefore be his spokesmen, they would carry his message throughout the world, which means that the New Testament is not an afterthought, um, it's not a circumstance of history, but it was an intentional set of documents that Jesus had commissioned. So that's going to be, I'm going to try to demonstrate that and prove that to you today, okay? So let's turn to our first passage, Mark 3. Uh, can I have Rochelle read that for us? And so, and he, that's Jesus. This is the ESV translation, which um, they, they preserve all the pronouns. So sometimes you don't know who's, who it is. Yeah, so notice, right, that the disciples, Jesus chose his disciples to live with him. Uh, he had three years of public ministry, right? So every day, they're spending all day long with him, right? So they can live with him. They can learn from him up close. Um, the way that rabbis would teach is that um, we sort of had this image, right, that uh, when certain uh, sermons or certain lessons were presented, they were the first time and only time that it was ever presented, right? But with every good teacher, teachers repeat themselves, right? There's like variations, so no doubt, everything that they heard from Jesus, they heard like 20 times, right? Because Jesus was constantly saying the same thing over and over again in, in variations. 
Um, so he, they lived with him, they, they learned from him, and then, not just to become students, but what does it say? And then he sends them out to preach, right? To ultimately reproduce his teaching, right? And so, uh, this is, and so the, the important word there, if you notice, right, it says, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Uh, when I was younger, I used to think apostles was just disciples after the resurrection, <laughs> right? It was just the same word. But the word apostle has a very special meaning in the Greek. It's the Greek word apostolos. Um, and it means emissary or authorized representative. Authorized This had a very technical and very specific meaning in the ancient world. The reason is because this is a world without um, reliable forms of communication, right? Um, Even letter writing was not completely, truly reliable. So if a king wanted to send a messenger to one of his vassals, he would send an apostle. He would send an authorized representative, an emissary, who would have his full authority and weight. And then he would go to the vassal, or maybe he would go to the uh, the king that he's battling with, and he had full authority to negotiate the terms of agreement. Does that make any sense? So that uh, whatever the like, when the emissary is in front of you, that's the king, right, before you. His words are the king's words, and the emissary has no authority to say his own opinion, his own thoughts. He he says everything that represents the king, and. To the degree that the emissary is close to the king, to that degree you can trust him, right? Like if he's, for example, the cousin or the brother or the son of the king. Um, so we see that with Jesus. Jesus is creating, is appointing emissaries. He's the king, and he's going to send out his his uh, authorized representatives um, who has his full authority. John 20, can I have uh, a Gail read that for us? Yeah, this word that we see here, send, it's not a generic word. The Greek word is, is klempo. It's not just means to be send, but it actually means to appoint. It means to commission for a task. And then notice the parallel that Jesus was sent by the Father, right? It's not just that the Father said, get out of here, you know, <laughs> or, go over there. But the Father sends Jesus, commissions Jesus for a specific task with a specific message. Remember, Jesus says all the time, I don't speak on my own accord. I speak on behalf of my Father. Everything that the Father tells me, I speak to you. I don't speak on my own authority, but on my Father's authority. And then Jesus says the parallel works with his apostles, so he sends the apostles, right? And and notice also the connection to the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, it says he breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. So that with this special commission comes special enablement, right? How can they... Uh, fulfill this duty to be authorized representative of Jesus because they have the Spirit. So we see that in John 14. Justin, can, you, can I have you read that? <clears throat> but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's right. So it's not just dependent on the disciples having memorized what Jesus taught them, although that would have almost certainly been true. We forget how this was not a literate culture. This was an oral culture. 
Um, for example, the, the Pharisees, it was very typical for them to memorize the entire Old Testament word for word. It was not a problem. Memorization was, was very um, easy and very um, uh, regular. So absolutely, Jesus' teachings, they would have memorized right, as his disciples. But more so than that, um, and we sort of have this impression, right, um, and sort of the, the skeptical view out there is that you have basically telephone, right? So Jesus said something, but Jesus never wrote it down. So then you have the apostles or the disciples, and they're saying this is what Jesus said, but there's some corruption, right? Like, you know, if I taught this class, and then somebody said to you, what did Michael say in Sunday school? And then you say, well, this is what he said. It's going to be slightly corrupted. It's going to have a few differences, right? And then the skeptical view is, but then the New Testament wasn't even written by the disciples. It was written by generations after them. And so it becomes this long, corrupted message. That, that second part, I'm going to challenge, but let me just stick to the uh, apostles mm-hmm. and disciples. Jesus specifically says, the Spirit is for you to teach you and to bring to your remembrance so that you can know, you can recall, right, everything that Jesus taught them, right? So, so the apostles are constantly conscious of this, right? That 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 the message they speak is not, they're not just making it up. And so you see that in the next passage, um, Galatians 1.12. This is the apostle Paul, right? He's uh, writing to the church in Galatia. He's telling them what is the gospel. And he says, look, don't take it on my word. Kevin, can you read it? For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's right. So Paul says very clearly, this is not from man, meaning this is not you know, from human imagination. This is not just like religious ideas that are current in the day. Um, I wasn't taught it, but I received it directly by revelation from Jesus Christ, right? And, and uh, Jesus, I mean, Paul met the resurrected Jesus. Paul had the Spirit, right? He was specifically appointed as an apostle. Paul is constantly talking about his apostleship. When I, I remember when I was younger and I would read Paul's letters, and he would always say, I'm an apostle. <laughs> and I always thought, why are you like pulling rank all the time, right? Like, right, why are you always saying apostle? <laughs> um, because he's constantly saying, this is why you can trust me. This is why you should listen to me. This is why you should take what I say to be the words of God, okay? Um, so the basic answer to the question, where did the Bible come from, is Jesus commissioned appointed apostles to write down his words, his teachings, and therefore we know that they are the very words of Jesus. They are the very words of God, and we can trust them. So that he created the mechanism, right? Um, and I want to come back to this whole thing with the idea that Jesus never wrote anything down. And why not? And, well, you know, there's a practical answer, right? He was doing three years of active ministry. Uh, to write down anything takes a lot of thought. You've got to sit down. Uh, but the other thing is that Jesus never meant to write anything. He always meant for his apostles to be his witnesses and to be his authorized messengers to write, them, to write things down, right? And that was the designated role of the apostles. So, for example, Acts chapter 10. Where are we, Jeff? Can you read that? And oh, let me, let me set up the what's going on. So this is Peter, the Apostle Peter, before Cornelius' household, and he's explaining the gospel to them. And notice, every time they explain the gospel, they have to explain, okay, this isn't just like, I'm just saying it. They have to explain the authorized, the, uh, the, the, the authoritative mechanism by which they know, that people can know this is the word of God, right? 
from the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Yeah, so notice there's a two-step process. In verse 41, I have it underlined, uh, Peter says, we were chosen as witnesses. It's not just that we happen to have been his friends. It's not just that we happen to be near him and heard him preach and teach, but that we were specifically chosen by Jesus for this very task. And then it says in verse 42, he commanded us to preach and to testify, right? So it's not just that he chose us and we're with him, but you know, but we're just going to go freelance and speak on our own behalf. No, he, he even commissioned and commanded even what we say, what we preach and what we testify is, from, is a direct command of the Lord. Does that make sense? Um, and therefore you see this, this concept of the apostle. To receive an apostle is to receive Christ himself. Um, this is, by the way, the problem with red letter edition. I'll write it in red. <laughs> um, red letter editions of the Bible, if you guys are not familiar with that. Um, it's basically where the words of Christ are in red. And uh, I think several problems with this, but the way a lot of pa- people practically do this is they put more weight on the red letters, right? Or I've had many people tell me before, I don't read the black, I just read the red, right? Um, because they want, they want direct connection to Jesus, right? But that idea basically says that when, when, when Jesus is speaking, yes, that has divine weight, but when the apostles are speaking, right, and the apostles, you know, their words are in black, right, it means that, well, it's like the game telephone, right, and we can't completely trust it, maybe they're going on their own, they're, they're speaking independently, and you see this kind of, like, two-fold way of thinking about the Bible creep up in popular culture all the time, so people say all the time, well, the Bible says it, yeah, but Jesus never talked about it, right? You hear that argument all the time. Yes, but Jesus didn't say anything. You know, Apostle Paul said it. So, for example, the issue of homosexuality. People say this all the time. Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. Now, never mind the fact that Jesus said he, he defined marriage, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. By defining marriage, by quoting Genesis chapter 1, he's excluding all other forms of marriage, right? He's excluding polygamy, for example. Jesus never directly spoke against polygamy, but we know he spoke against polygamy because he defined it, right, in the classic biblical way. But people say all the time, well, Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. The apostle Paul did, but that's because he's a, he's, 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 he's a man of his time. That's because he's soaked up in the culture of the day and, you know, he was a bigot. The huge problem with that is that Jesus commissioned the apostles, right? That Jesus commissioned the apostle Paul. So whatever Paul says when he writes down in, for example, Romans chapter 1, that homosexuality is, is in violation of, of God's intended uh, rule for sex, those are Jesus' words. That has the weight of Jesus. So if anyone says to you what Jesus never said, you should read Romans chapter 1, <laughs> right? And they'll say, well, that's Apostle Paul. Well, then you, you completely misunderstand Jesus and you completely misunderstand uh, the Bible. 
So, for example, you have Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. So, Priscilla, can I, can I have you read that? Yes. That's the response. Right? Jesus says, if uh, your words are my words, how they receive you, how they listen to you, is how they listen and receive me, right? Can I have uh, uh, Eric read Luke 10? The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So, all the Bible is red letters. I want to come out with a red letter edition, <laughs> where it's just all red. How do you deal with this, the parts where Paul says, you know, this is my thoughts, not God's? First Corinthians chapter 7, right? Why do you always come up with the hard questions? <laughs> um, so that's, that's an interesting passage. I think there's two ways to look at it. So, so Paul talking about um, singleness, right? Or actually, Paul, um, I think he's talking about uh, women... Uh, believing women who are married to unbelieving husbands. I think that's the specific situation, right? And the Apostle Paul says, uh, this is not from the Lord, this is from me, right? Um, There's two ways to look at it. You could look at it as, A, that's the only place where Paul steps out and he's setting aside his apostolic authority and he's saying, everything I say is from the Lord, but this is the one spot where I never got instructions from the Lord about this unique teaching, which is an unbelieving, a believing wife married to an unbelieving husband. So let me just speak, sort of, and then take it like that. I actually don't think necessarily Paul is saying that. I think what he's saying is, yes, I've never heard uh, Jesus directly speak about this issue. But if you read 1 Corinthians 7, he says, but as one who has been entrusted with authority, you ought to listen to me. So he is distinguishing what Jesus directly said, and yet he's saying, I'm an apostle, and I'm receiving this from the Spirit, from the Lord, and so you can still trust what I'm saying. So those are two ways to look at it. But either way establishes the general point. The fact that even Paul would make this distinction between the words of Christ and his words means that the whole Bible is a red-letter edition. Does that answer your question? Okay. I was, I was, as I was studying, I was like, I bet Jeff will ask this question. <laughs> I better have an answer for him. Um, any other questions on this regard? <clears throat> All right, let's move on. Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, I think this is a really interesting passage. Um, where are we? Can I have uh, Christine? Um, are we at Christine? Yes. Hebrews 2? Yeah. How shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Yeah. So... What's the order of how we receive the words of God, right? It, it was first delivered by Christ, right? Um, and then Christ gives it to, who does he say in verse, the end of verse 3? He says, it was attested to us by those who heard. By those who heard would be the apostles. And what they do is they attest. What does the word attest mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's not just they say, but it's a very special, it has a weighty significance. They're bearing witness, they're authorizing, they're notarizing, so to speak, right? What Jesus says, um, all of this confirmed by signs and wonders, right? The signs of the apostolic age. To those who heard, I mean, um, to us. So who's the us? When, Hebrew, when the writer of Hebrews says, verse 3, 
um, attested to us. Who is the us? The apostles. No, because the apostles are by those who heard. So it was attested by those who heard to us. Church? Yes. So it's the church, or it's us. Right? That's us. You and me. Uh, the first generation. Notice, is there something really strange about what Hebrews is saying, by the way? In that. Where does, where does the writer of Hebrews put himself? Yeah. The writer of Hebrews does not put himself here. He puts himself here. Um, before I address that, notice that this is the pattern of revelation. This is how we know. It was the word of God comes from Christ. He appoints his apostles who attested to us, the church. This is how we know that the New Testament, so this is right here, the New Testament. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the, the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, I'm not an apostle. And notice that um, people don't just willy-nilly acclaim, claim that they're apostles. So that's the, other compl- uh, that's the other criticism that you get from skeptical scholarship. Everyone is just out there. It's just a grab bag. Listen to me, listen to me. But in Hebrews, he clearly says, I'm not an apostle, right? Because he says, I, I'm not an original eyewitness to the resurrection. I'm, I'm not one of the 12 that Jesus chose. So then why is the writer, of he- why is the book of Hebrews in the New Testament? We don't even know who wrote Hebrews. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why people don't think it's Paul. Because Paul wouldn't say it was attested to us. Because he clearly says, nobody taught it to me. I didn't get it from the apostles. Because I'm an apostle, I received it directly from Jesus. So it doesn't sound like Paul. My personal favorite theory is Apollos. But we don't know. So the answer is, um, the same problem we have with Hebrews, the same problem we have with Mark and Luke. right? Uh, Mark is the nephew of Barnabas. Luke is... A, you know, a, a companion of Paul, but neither of these two claim that they were eyewitnesses, right? Um, that they personally knew Jesus Christ, that he instructed them. So why do we have these three documents in the New Testament? And the answer is that they are part of the apostolic circle. So they're not necessarily written by the apostles, but they're written in, they're, they're, they're in the circle of the apostles, and the apostles most certainly authorized their writing. And we'll actually have a, uh, I'll have a secondary argument that we'll, I'll get to shortly. But any questions on that issue? Okay, so let me move on. Um, so the apostles are very careful to demonstrate their bona fides as authentic witnesses of Christ. Um, they're always, always, right? This is why the apostles are always saying we are apostles. Right? They talk about it incessantly because why listen to us? And even Hebrews says, why should you listen to me? I'm not making it up. I'm getting it from, directly from the apostles. The apostle told me all these things. So, I, so um, you're, uh, people never, never say they're just shooting from the hip. So, for example, First John, right? So this is John the apostle. Uh, can I have David unread this? <clears throat> That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Yeah, let me just stop there, right? It, like, it, everywhere you read in the New Testament, you have this kind of almost laborious credentialing at the beginning. 
right? They're always saying, we saw it, we touched it, we were there, right? And you're just like, okay, okay, just get to the like spiritual instructions. But right there, it's for our benefit. It's letting us know that they're not shooting from the hip, right? Um, verse 2, keep going on. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Yeah, I mean, like, if you were an English editor, you would just say, you're being a little redundant, John, let me cross this out. But he says it again and again, because he's establishing his apostolic credentials, right? Keep going. Uh so that so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete that is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all yes so notice in verse 4 he says we're writing these things so the writing of the new testament was commissioned by Jesus right Jesus instructed his apostles to go ahead and write the New Testament because it is a command of the Lord, right? This is the message we heard and we're writing these things for you. Yes, Carlos? The book of Revelation was also commanded uh, by Jesus. Yes, we'll get to the book of Revelation shortly, but yes, that, that's excellent insight. Any other questions? Okay. Um, so therefore, right, um, we, need, we need to see the New Testament, right? Why these books and not others these are apostolic writings. Again, not, apostol not uh, apostolic authorship, because Hebrews, Mark, and Luke um, are not written by apostles, but they're apostolic writings, meaning they're, they're from the authority of the apostles. Um, and apostolic writings are scripture. And this term, scripture, is actually a very technical term in the Bible. Um, the, the plain meaning is just writings, right? But it, it, it means um, the word of God, right? Let me write this. So how do we know the Bible is the ooh, word of God? How do we know the Bible is the word of God? Because they were written by the apostles, all right? If I'm repeating myself, if I seem to, I've, I've made the point like five minutes at the beginning of class, um, I just want to keep making it over and over again because this is very important. Because the idea, again, is that the New Testament was chosen in the 4th century. Um, you see this argument over and over and over again that there was just this wild, uh, wild west of various random texts and books. And that's just simply not true. The New Testament began with Jesus because he specifically told his apostles, go ahead, you're my messengers, write the New Testament. And you see that the New Testament, in fact, right, this is the New Testament, right? These books. The New Testament has a self-conscious awareness of what's going on. It's not like everyone's just like writing novels, you know? And then they're like, oh, and then somehow in the fourth century they said, hey, hey, the, these set of writing, they sh this should be the word of God. No, from the very beginning, the New Testament documents themselves had a self-consciousness that they were the very words of God. So, for example, Second Peter, where are we? Uh, Ashley, can you read that? The complications of our Lord and salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. 
There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable stick to their own destruction, as indeed the other scriptures. Yeah, so several interesting things. First of all, Peter says there's a whole bunch of letters by Paul. So he's aware of them, right? He says, Paul has written all these letters. And he says, by the way, and he says this almost like incidentally. He doesn't even make a, a, a laid out, developed argument. He doesn't say they're scriptures and here's why. He says it almost as an incidental comment because he's really talking about people who who, who don't understand Paul or who twist Paul. He says, um, as they do the other scriptures. right? And again, that word scripture is a technical term in the Bible. It means the word of God. And it describes the Old Testament. right? So if you look at all the contemporary literature, every time that people use scripture, they're talking about the Old Testament canon. We'll talk about how that came to be next week. And notice that Peter immediately, from the moment it was written, Paul's letters, he says, Paul's letters you should add along with the Torah, the prophets, the book of Psalms. That's scripture. That's the word of God. right? So they knew. Um, it's not an evolved understanding. And then you see that, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 5, the New Testament has this, again, consciousness that it's the canon. Um, let me just define canon again. <coughs> Who can tell me what canon is? Carlos is smiling at me, so that means he's ready to answer. No, Carlos is shaking his head. John, you're standing next to Carlos, so. (laughs) That's right. It's an authorized list of books, right? As I said before, how do we know? Like, uh, who has a Bible? Oh. I've like trained you not to even bring Bibles. I'm sorry. Here, let me, let me get this Bible. There's an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, at the beginning of the Bible, what do you see? Table of contents. Yes, you do. You see a table of contents. I was going to say that. I'm, I'm like looking for it, but I see like contribute. Is the contributors? It's like a preface. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Okay. This is what you see. Okay. What is this? Table of contents, right? Where is the table of contents in the Bible? There is no table of contents, right? So how do we know that it's these 27 books? There's no divinely inspired table of contents, so to speak. So where do we, how do we know that there's not a 28th book out there floating around? Or that there's a 28th book yet to be added? How do we not know that it's actually a 25-book canon, not a 27-book canon, right? So... Um, so where do we get this idea of the canon? And a lot of the skeptical scholarship will say there is no idea of the canon. Nobody had this conception of the canon. It only came about emerging in the 4th century when you had this basically massive civil war between warring factions of Christians. And a one group of Christians said, aha, we have Constantine the Great on our side. You know, He's going to outlaw all, all other forms of Christianity. And we're going to create the authorized list. Nobody else can read any other book. Let's gather them all up and burn them. And that's the storyline that we get, right? And in fact, we don't see that at all because the canon, because the New Testament already knows there's a canon, that this is the word of God, right? So, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is Paul. Let me just set this up for you. So Paul is talking about uh, uh, paying, uh, uh, supporting uh, gospel ministers, work gospel workers uh, financially. And so he provides two proof texts 
why this should be the case, right? So where, where are we? Uh, Kat, can I have you read it? The scripture says... Okay, so let me just stop right there, sorry. <laughs> so he basically says, he doesn't say, because the principles of economics or the principles of practical church governance, he says, this is what scripture says. This is this is what the Bible, the word of God tells us, right? For the scripture says, go ahead. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Yes. So what a weird text, right? But this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, which is in the Torah, right? Which is the Old Testament. And it's it's in a list of... of Random laws. Actually, if you look at the subtitle that you know, book publisher, Bible publishers put, it says miscellaneous laws, right? So it really is like just random laws. And one of the laws is that when an ox is treading grain, right? Um, so I, I'm not a farmer, but this is what I imagine. So the ox is like, you know, <laughs> going through the fields, right? And it's doing its work. You're not to muzzle it. Why, why would you muzzle it? Like, wh- I mean, what happens when you muzzle an ox? Yes. So he says, don't do that. While the ox is walking, let him eat, right? So that's, that's what, so Paul says, that's what the Old Testament says. The gospel worker is, is treading out grain. Let him eat while he's, he's, he's walking, right? And then he cites another supporting scriptural text. Where are we, Kat? The laborer deserves his wages. Okay. I challenge you to find that in the Old Testament. The laborer deserves his wages. You cannot find that in the Old Testament. You know what that is? That is a direct quote from Luke chapter 10, right? That's really interesting. So first of all, Paul knew there was a Luke, uh, uh, the gospel of Luke. It had already been written, or maybe an alternate theory is that um, there was an oral tradition from which Luke came out, and he was already aware of the oral tradition. But in either case, he knew there was a gospel of Luke, right? And in Luke 10, what's the story? Jesus sends out his disciples, and he tells them to go preach the gospel in towns and villages. And he says, um, and when people invite you into their homes, go go there, be sheltered, eat their food, he says. And he gives as the explanation, the laborer deserves his wages, right? Because you're gospel workers, you should be paid, you should be fed for what you do. And so Paul cites that, Luke chapter 10, verse 7, as scripture. So do you see, like, do you see how, like, amazing that is. Paul, the various New Testament books are all pointing to each other. They're all saying, your scripture. Your scripture. I recognize you. Okay? Yes. All the New Testament books we'll talk about it was written were written in the first century. We know Paul died fairly early. Um... um so it couldn't have been written, like we know he died, like I think in the 60s. So all of Paul's letters, in fact, and this is a, a, another, big, uh, 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 another big myth, right? People say, oh, the New Testament was written so late. Um, very few scholars uh, contend the authorship of the core of Paul's letters. Paul wrote 13. There's contentions about like, you know, some of the outer letters. But some of the core letters, no one disputes the core letters that were written by Paul. And we know Paul died. He was martyred in Rome. Nobody contends that either. And and so Paul's letters were, in fact, the first New Testament documents. Or one of the first New Testament documents. All right. So uh, where are we? First uh, Corinthians chapter 14. Um, where, 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 where? Can I have you? Um, Joe. <laughs> if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. 
So here again, here's Paul, right? And notice what he says. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. What if I were to say that to you? What I'm about to say, if you do not listen, you are not recognized. Be out with you, right? <laughs> You'd be like, who do you think you are, right? Um, but Paul can say that. Why? Because again, remember what Jesus said. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the Father. If they reject you, they reject me. Right? Because the apostles are emissaries, right? They're appointed representatives. And then notice what Paul says. He says, what I'm writing to you, and this goes back to Jeff's question, he says, is a command of the Lord. This is from Jesus. Paul says it. Now we can say, Paul, you're lying. I don't believe it. I think the New Testament is, 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 is wrong. But you can't come up with this other theory that the New Testament, that, that, that this wasn't a first century self-conscious effort on the part of the original writers that they knew exactly what they were doing, that they knew this was the word of God. Um, let's turn to Carlos's passage, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, where are you? Scott, can I have, can, can I have you read it? Um, revelation of Jesus Christ. Wait, so just because we preached on it recently, the word revelation there is the word apocalypse. Right, so apocalypse just means re- uh, re- to reveal, to uncover. But anyway, so that's where we get the title of the book. By the way, the titles of books are not canonical, meaning um, um, they're modern inventions. We, we gave them titles. Back then, nobody had titles for books. So you just almost use the first word or the first like, three words. You would pick one of the words and you would say that's, that's the title of the book. So anyways, go on. Um, so the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Yeah, so two things of note. John calls, even as he is writing the book of Revelation, he's saying this is the word of God, right? And notice what he says at the end. He says, blessed are all those who hear and keep what is written in it. Again, if anyone just said that, it's just like audacious. Who who would dare write that? So these are divine words, divine revelation. We see that again in Revelation 22. This is, I think Sarah brought this up last week. Um, but uh, uh, where are we? Wait, can I have you read it? <clears throat> I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add, add to him the plague described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Yeah, so I have underlined that where John says, if anyone adds to them and if anyone takes away, right, may he, may he be accursed. Right, by the way, only, I mean, you can only say this as an apostle. If I ever said, and if anyone records this message and you don't play the whole thing, and if you edit any one of my words, may you be accursed. You'd be like, well, who, who do you think you are, right? But John can do this because these are the very words of God. Don't monkey around with the words of God. That's what John is saying. And he's not just saying this just like on his own authority. He's, again, copying uh, Deuteronomy. So, uh, Marcus, can I have you read Deuteronomy 4? You, you shall not add to the word that I commanded you, command you, nor take it from, from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. 
Right. So notice it's the exact same prohibitions. Don't add and don't subtract because these are the very words of God. Notice this happens at the very end of the Torah. This is Deuteronomy. This happens again at the end of the New Testament. So Sarah was right, even though I shot her down. It's kind of an implicit end to the canon, right? It's basically a book end. But it's just letting you know that the book of Revelation has the same weight as the Torah. Let's go on to the next question, which I think is a really interesting question. How do we know that the New Testament is closed? How do we know it's just 27 books? How do we not know that it continues on or there's a 28th, 29th, and 30th book out there, right? And here's an, and, and, and the, the, the problem with this, and the problem is with this is that there is no verse in the New Testament that says there are 27 books. There is no divinely inspired table of contents, and there is no uh, statement anywhere that the writings will stop at a certain time. So how do we know that? And we know that because it's everywhere. Let me just show you Jude 1 3. So, uh, John, can you read that? Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Yeah, notice that language, once for all. That's a very important phrase. It's saying that the apostles' ministry was once for all. What does that mean? It means it doesn't happen again and again and again. It was a one-time event. Ephesians 2.20, uh, the prophets and the apostles is the foundation of the church. There's only one foundation layer. It's not a repeated uh, <coughs> phenomenon or process. And therefore, implicit in that idea that the apostles' ministry is a once and for all uh, foundational ministry, implicit in that is the close of the canon. Why? Padawans, young Padawans. Why, why, why is that? Why is the canon, the closing of the canon, implicit in the fact that the apostles' ministry is a once and for all thing? Because there's no more apostles. Why not? Because they all died. Yes. <laughs> What's the requirement to be an apostle? All appointed by Christ. You have to be an eyewitness. And necessarily, to be an eyewitness, you have to have been alive. During that time, right? And therefore, all the New Testament writings have to be first century documents. It has to be. No second, third, fourth, fifth century documents can be admitted to the canon because they could not possibly have been an eyewitness. Does that make sense? That's. I thought you had to be called by Christ. Yes, you have to be called by Christ, yes. So, that's the other thing. But... He calls eyewitnesses. So Paul is the last apostle, and he witnessed the resurrected Christ. There is no other. Um, then how do we how do we not know that there's a, there's more apostles? Then I mean, how, how, how do we actually know? It, so so yeah so 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 we'll, we'll, so we're gonna I'm gonna answer that. But it has they they, they would all have to stay within the first century because because this is the risen Christ, right? Christ was risen for this. Uh, 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 he appeared to his apostles for this select period. He does not continue to appear, uh, show himself through multiple centuries. Um, and so anyone who claims to be apostle, it has to be within the first century. How do we know that all the people who claim to be apostles were in fact apostles? We'll get to that briefly. So that's a good question. So therefore, this is not an arbitrary selection of books. So this whole idea, there's thousands, not thousands, hundreds of documents they randomly chose these. No, first of all, the answer is all of these are first century, and all of these are second, 
third and fourth century works. So very clearly, that's how we know. That's how we know that these books are not... In fact, in the early church itself, they even said... Uh, they would exclude certain books and say, we know this, we know, I know, I, I saw it written. <laughs> it recently was published. It cannot possibly be part of the New Testament canon. So that's the criteria. But it goes even deeper than that because it's not just the bare fact that it came from the first century, but, the, but God appointed, and here's the answer, so listen carefully. God appointed the church so they would correctly recognize the New Testament canon. So here's John 10, 27, very important verse. Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. So the church recognized the voice of their Savior, of their shepherd, speaking. And therefore, the church will properly and correctly recognize the 27-book canon. Right? And what's the immediate um, objection or response? Which is, why did it take until the 4th century? for there to be a consensus, uh, a universal consensus, which is what happened, right? And the answer is very um, simple. The first thing is that it's not that the church took, I mean, it's not that the church in the 4th century, in the mid-300s, said, hey, there should be this thing called New Testament scriptures. Hmm, I wonder what they could be. No, this was always being discussed and always being thought of that there was this idea that the New Testament was scriptures was immediately from the very beginning, as we saw from the various New Testament. You know, uh, Peter verifies Paul, Paul verifies Luke, right? Um, but the other thing is that there were lists uh, from even in the second century. So I already talked to you about the moratorium fragment, right? You have that list. Where did that list come from? It's not like people said, okay, from now on we're going to create lists. No, the list came as a response to heretics. So there was this heretic named Marcion, Marcion had this idea that the Old Testament God is a bad God, he's an evil God, and, and, and all the stuff in the, in, the, in the New Testament that talks about the Old Testament God is invalid. So he took out his little exacto knife and he was cutting out various texts, and he said only these books are, like he really liked Luke, because Luke didn't have as much Old Testament quotations, right? Um, he really liked Paul, he loved Galatians, right? But he, he didn't like Hebrews, he didn't like, uh, for example, Matthew, and so... Uh, the, the, the church responded to the heretics, to Marcion, by creating, no, you're wrong, these are the list of divine books. So you have the, Mars, uh, uh, what is it, the moratorium fragment in the second century, and the, the church was always creating lists all throughout various, uh, various decades, and, it, and there were disagreements among the lists, and in, until finally the fourth century, they came to like, it's kind of like when you're looking at an image, and it's like out of focus, and it finally came into focus in the 4th century. So why did it take that long? And my answer is, first of all, all of the lists... See, people have... Um, there's a huge myth about the myths. The lists, which is that every list was randomly different from everyone else. But in fact, all of the various lists, if you look at them, they're very, very similar. They never include a book that is not part of the 27-book canon. The, every list is like short, basically. Does that make sense? So there's 22 book lists, there's 24 book lists, there's like 19 book lists, right? And they all they all um, exclude generally the same books, right? So what you have is you have the core, like you have the four gospels. This was never disputed. Nobody ever said there's a fifth or sixth gospel. It was always accepted from the very beginning. Every single list includes all four Gospels. 
And no list includes a gospel that isn't among the four. And then all 13 of Paul's letters are always included. So what happens is that there were a few books that were excluded. So there was Hebrews, there was James, there was Second Peter. Second Peter, if you, if you take seminary classes, you'll know Second Peter reads very different from First Peter. Right, it's much more sophisticated than First Peter, so it seems kind of strange. The answer, which uh, uh, I, which the, the 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 argument that I that I find most satisfying is that Peter used secretaries, so Peter just switched the secretary, so the writing became much more polished. But in any case, so what happens is you have various lists, and so various lists would, and so there was Revelation also was disputed. So various lists would include like this, or it would, it would be like this, or it would be like this. Does that make any sense? And there was no, uh, uh, and there were lists that included all 27, by the way. But there wasn't a consensus. So the church was talking to each other, and theologians were talking to each other, and pastors were talking to each other, and it took the four, until the fourth century until finally there came a consensus. And, from, and since that consensus, there has never been a dispute or an argument. Does that make any sense? Um, is there any questions about that? So how do we know, for example, that every apostle coming from the first century is truly an apostle? Well, first of all, there were signs and wonders attested to that apostle. But the, the secondary answer is that the church, Jesus says, my sheep will recognize my voice. And so that's true for you. I think it's, um, if you ever read any of these other documents, you'll immediately recognize. You'll be like, this, this isn't the word of God. How do you know that? Because you're his sheep. You know his voice. When you read the New Testament, this is you know this is the word of God speaking to you. Okay, So uh, that's the answer. Um, because it's spiritually discerned. Yes, because you're his sheep. So the spirit helps you to know. That's the answer. But that's not the foundational answer. The foundational answer is this. Jesus appointed the apostles. Um... Oh, why the 4th century also? Because the church is not infallible. Church makes mistakes all the time. So it took them three centuries to finally like come together. Right? Um, Were the apostles the 11 disciples plus Paul? Um, the, the, the exact number of the apostles is a little bit murky too. So... Um, James, possibly. So it depends on how you read James. Um, um, there are certain writers who, who clearly say they're not apostles, like Mark, like Luke, like Hebrews. There's some who, it seems like it, like James. I forget exactly. I think James does claim to be an apostle. Um, but I'm not sure I forget. Yes. Can't anticipate all your questions. <laughs> um... So let me let me graphically draw it, okay? So there were two stages to the canon, okay? So this is the canon. And the canon came to be in the first century. The moment it was written, it was the word of God. Does that make sense? But it took the church until the fourth century to historically come to a consensus before they recognized it. Now, what a lot of people do, and you're going to hear this skepticism all the time, is that the canon was created in the 4th century. So that's 300 years. And therefore, you can't trust the Bible. It's just a result of like historical facts from the 4th century. That's not true. 
the canon was formed theologically in the first century, my sheep hear my voice, it took 300 years for them to come together and come to a consensus. But they did eventually. And so in that sense, and I have it right here, the church is not a, is, is a thermometer, it's not a thermostat. What's a thermostat? What's the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat? It sets the temperature, right. So the church recognizes scripture. It receives the word of God. It doesn't choose the word of God. It's not a thermostat. It doesn't set it, but it, it reads it, right? And so in, 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 a, in a very real sense, the, can, the church didn't choose the canon. The canon chose itself. Or another way to put it is the canon forced itself onto the church. It had no choice but to recognize it because it, 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 there was the authoritative voice of God in the New Testament writings. And the church could not help but to hear it and recognize it. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura, exactly. And therefore, um, the, the foundation of the church is the Bible, even though the New Testament was written after the founding of the church. Does that make sense? But theologically, the New Testament establishes the church, not the church establishing the New Testament. All right. Let me close in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this um, time to think critically and to uh, look at um, the New Testament. Uh, help us to have assurance that it is from you. It is the very words of God that we can trust it, that we can live our life by it. Um, we pray that you would build up our faith in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Yes, you were saying that we can believe the New Testament because it's the, the Word of God written by the appointed apostles, right? Yes. But then, and the church. We can trust that the church correctly recognized the right documents because as Jesus said, my sheep are yours. Right. But then Hebrews, Mark, and Luke are written by apostles, but we can recognize them because the New Testament are self-aware and they point to each other. Well, not only that, but Hebrews, uh, Mark, and Luke, even though they're not apostles, they weren't still nevertheless freelance because as Hebrews says, I received it from the apostles. And, and uh, Luke says that too as well. I received it from the apostles. Okay. So they were in the apostolic circle. So, the, so, and and those three as well are in, all from the first century. And they're all eyewitness testimonies. So even though they're not apostles, they're still eyewitness testimonies. And again, the foundation is the church hears the voice of God. So the church knew correctly. Those three are from the word. Are from are from Christ.